Hello, listeners, and welcome to the July episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. My name is Josh. And my name is Max. And here today we have as a guest, Ronan Delisle. Welcome, Ronan. So, hey. Ronan. Hey, guys. <laughs> Ronan is a fantastic guitarist, composer. Uh, he's a has released music with the bands Hunter Gatherers, Senor Fin, and also Abby Blackwell's trio Ray, which was featured in a previous episode a little bit ago. Uh, and Ronan is formerly now uh, of Seattle, but is now based in Los Angeles. So I think you might be our first LA podcast guest. Awesome. That's that, that, that right. Yeah. Nice. So let's start from the very beginning. How did you get started with music and guitar specifically? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think mostly I could say that I got started when I was around 12. My dad had a guitar laying around that I sort of eyed and played with um, a little bit, but I didn't really um, get like a real, my first guitar until I was 12. Um, And then from there, it was a lot of learning, you know, 2000s alt-rock riffs, you know, Blink-182. As you do. Yeah, really just great stuff to play at the guitar when you're starting out. Um, and then, yeah, I got more and more into it as I started playing with people and, you know, experiencing the the thrill of being in bands and um, working on people's songs. And, um, yeah, I just got more and more into it until finally I found the stuff that really... Um, like made me fall in love with like improvising, which was jazz music and hearing Thelonious Monk and um, Miles Davis and just sort of all the classic. Um, what books or with. do you remember a particular record or an event that brought you to jazz in particular? Yeah. Um, you know, my parents both had a lot of great records around the house, but it was actually my friend, um, my friend's dad who loaned me, um, it was a Dizzy Gillespie compilation and Monk's Dream were the two that he he gave me to listen nice. to. Um, and I remember Monk's Dream really like, um, it was such a new thing to my ears, like what they were doing. And I think it's, Max, you would know, but is it Frankie Dunlop on that album? I think so. Someone, I, mean, I can't remember. His close collaborator on drums for most of the the famous stuff. I'd have to look it up to verify that, but I think so. Yeah. I, I just remember the, the, the thing about jazz that like really knocked me out at first was, was the drumming because it's so um, like, it's just such a different thing from like, uh, like the rock drumming that I was listening to a lot of um, before I'd sort of gotten to jazz and just the subtlety of everyone uh, on that record was really new. So and to confirm, um, it is Frankie Dunlop. Okay, awesome. I just cool. looked it up <laughs> to make sure. Um, yeah, that's a fantastic record. So that was, that was what got me into jazz, and um, and then very quickly I discovered you know the great guitarists. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of from there. Around sixteen years old is when I started to be like really getting serious about music. We, we played a gig. Um, probably when you were about that age, uh, 
out at like a coffee shop in Woodenville or something. I think you remember this. I think yeah. like Xavier Del Castillo was on it, and I forget who was playing bass. But uh, you two play played a, a gig together. Wait, you two played a gig together when Ronan was sixteen. Yeah, Ma- we're, Max we're, was actually like, like that. Yeah, Max. Um, you know, I I owe mm-hmm. Max a big thank you actually because I I I grew up in Woodenville where there were no jazz musicians really my age um, that I knew of at least. Um, none that sort of had the bug, you know. Um, and Max was like so down to play when we met, and it was just like just great meeting someone else that was like really hungry to play. And that was like, knew all these other people who were hungry to play. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I was like, I feel like you guys, um, like you months, like your, your people back then, like had so much more experience than I did. And it was just great to, to, to meet you guys. And yeah, we did. I, I did end up, dragging you guys out to the east side to play some gigs <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I remember that being a fun gig actually or a couple gigs i think we did it a couple times yeah no it was yeah. really fun we got paid well, okay too, I think. yeah oh man, oh, man. <laughs> well it's fun to hear people start with their primary instruments but uh as we're on this uh mm-hmm. podcast call our listeners can't see but i can see you've got a stack of synthesizers sitting there behind you. And I'm curious how <laughs> and when you started getting into those. Since are really recent for me, actually. Um, I, I have a, a friend and I maybe mentor is a strong word because I don't think he would see it that way, but um, he's, he's a producer and engineer in Seattle. His name is Johnny Goss. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, he's produced a number of records that I've been involved in and like engineered them too. And, he, um, I think he's really the one that like introduced me to synthesizers as, um, yeah, just an extension of acoustic instruments and, um, mm. maybe not extension, maybe that's the wrong word, but like, um, I guess I used to have this divide. I would think about synthesizers as being somewhat different than acoustic instruments, which they're, they are in key ways, but they're also not. So I think I've been fascinated with synthesizers and including them in like acoustic music, whatever, you know, quote unquote acoustic music. Um, mm, and he's, he sort of helped me come into that and also just discover, yeah, the, the vast world of making music with synthesizers. So maybe in the last year Very or so, cool. a couple of years. Yeah. Nice. <clears throat> That's a deep world to fall into. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Johnny Goss uh, recorded one of the tracks on this new record that you have, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Good catch. Um, we did, um, I guess the working name for this band, even though I put it out under my own name was fig. Um, okay. Which, which was like a loose sort of collective of people that would play my music. Um, and uh, I think the summer of 2018, like this fan of the music who I'd sort of met um, once or twice, just sort of reached out and said that, you know, he really liked the music and he wanted to like, uh, he wanted to give, like help us record music so he could give it as a gift to his fiance or girlfriend. Um, but we had no, we had no music recorded. So he just funded it. And just, we just had a, he funded a day of recording at Johnny's place. And that's how we got wow. like 
Yeah, we got four tracks from that. And I loved the Icebergs track so much that I just sort of kept it and remixed it. Um, so that, that Icebergs track is from a different tracking session than um, the other Interesting. stuff. Interesting. Uh-huh. So that's, that's, uh, that's the, the one track from that session on this record, yeah? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we've hinted a little bit at this record existing, but I don't, we haven't yeah. officially announced or named it. Yeah, let's get yeah. into it. So Ronan's got this rad record out called Write to Me, Akoda, which came out in 2020. Is that right? Um, actually, it came out um, March 2021. March 2021. I have my dates wrong. That's I just okay. remember it coming out <laughs> during quarantine. And uh, I guess I like all the months kind of blend into each other. But this is a very recent release. I'm really excited about this. And uh, yeah, I tell me, tell me about this record. Why is it called Write to Me Akoda? What is it? What is it about? Well, um, yeah, the title. Yeah, people ask me about the title, and it's funny because I lived with that phrase for um, for so long um, that it just sort of makes sense to me, but. Um, I wasn't, I think, I mean, I think the origins of this are, uh, I was in a rehearsal with my bandmate in, in Senor Fiend, and I think he has a lyric that says, like, write to me in code, something like that. Like, mm. And I, I would always, like, you know, sometimes you hear something and you just walk around singing the wrong lyric for so long that it makes sense. And, um, yeah, I heard that, and I really... It like just got stuck in my head as right to me a coda and then i was sort of like it, it makes no sense to me but i like the sound of it and like like what is a coda like you know as far as like the musical form like a coda being like um the end of a piece and like this also like new it's usually like a new piece of music you know a, a new theme or idea that's being presented at the end of a piece um yeah. And then also just like, yeah, just the idea of endings in general, I was thinking about a lot. Um, and, and yeah, just being sort of enamored with the sound of something without totally understanding it or like what it actually means, I think, was also something that guided the music as far as like um, just focusing on sound as opposed to like trying to understand anything about um, like the whys or the the actual meaning of thing and just sort of living in the world of sound, uh, in that way. So that phrase, I loved the sound of it, but I had no idea what it meant. So, yeah, um, that's awesome. I like, I like that about it. So you studied at UW, is that right? Correct. And yeah. while you were there, I assume you met bassist Steve Rodby who wrote your liner notes. Is that right? I did. Yeah, I did meet Steve. So it sounds like he was fairly influential on this record. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, he, um, he has worked on a lot of records. Um, and he, he has a certain approach that I think is, is very distinct from how I would approach like making a record. Um, but he definitely, um, I guess his experience in making very polished, um, like kind of perfect sounding jazz records really helped he's, me. He's, like he's with Pat sorry. Metheny, right? Usually, yeah, he's worked on. For those a, who don't know, 
A lot of Matheny records. um, And he's also edited the video for a lot of it, if I'm not mistaken. So he's just like, oh, wow. um, Mm. If anyone's familiar with like The Way Up, that concert DVD, he edited that, which is, you know, no small feat. Um, Wow. So he's like incredible. He just has such a great technical understanding of mixing. And he was just able to like, he was really generous at this time. And I would send him mixes and he would sort of like, you know, give me like, you know, time, what is that? Like time stamps of like, you know, at 55 seconds, like the trumpet's a little weak sounding or like, uh, you know, your guitar is like, you know, like way too loud here and then way too soft here. Or like, just really made me really challenged me in like mixing myself as a leader in the record, as opposed to like mixing myself as a side man or like, it was just really challenged me to, make me sound like a leader on my album, which, you know, when you're re- mixing something, it's easy to get into these head trips of like, Oh, I'm too loud or like, or, or like, mm-hmm. Oh, I don't really like yeah. this. So I'm going to like turn myself down a little bit here. But, um, so yeah, he helped me navigate that really well. Um, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. I really, I couldn't, I don't think I could have done it without him. He was really helpful. Very yeah, cool. it's nice, really nice to have feedback during the creative process. And when I was uh, working on mixing my own record, uh, Ray Larson was super, super helpful at reviewing my mm-hmm. draft mixes and telling me, oh, nope, I don't know what you did to the trumpet, but it doesn't sound very natural. It's supposed to sound different. And yeah, would give yeah very, very specific feedback. That I was have super to helpful. shout out Ray right here and just say that I love his playing on this record. I mean, I love, you know, it sounds great overall, but I also specifically really like Ray's playing. Yeah. 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 I know. Wow. (laughs) It's really, really good. I, yeah, feel spoiled. Definitely. Um, He really kind of animated this project for me. Um, And Ray is one of those people that's also just like really hungry to play. And like, I just never feel, um, I never feel like he gets, exhausted or tired at rehearsals he's just such um he has so much vitality to like uh he he brings that kind of vitality to musical situations um i'm assuming to all of them but at least the ones i'm a part of he's just like um he just really wants to get into the nitty-gritty of how to make the music great and i think that that really helps with this particular batch of music was to have his specific um, sound and approach to the trumpet and all that, but also just like he's just a dedicated musician, and it's yeah, that's mm-hmm. like you know, obviously everyone's dedicated <clears throat> to some extent. You know, we all like to think we are, and sometimes there's people that you meet, you're like, wow, you like really care about music. That's not your music. That's really cool. <laughs> I think he treats all the music he's playing as his music, which I think is what makes him special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every musical situation I've encountered him in is, uh, the same in the sense that he just brings it all to the table and yeah. has a great attitude too. And sounds amazing. He's awesome. Yeah. But anyway, this is, is not Enough quite Ray's Ray. record. We <laughs> 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 could talk about Ray all day. Uh, uh yeah let's uh we talked a little bit about your liner notes and uh i just want to really shout out this zine that you've produced that uh yeah. comes together with the record 
Yeah. And so this record's available uh, digitally. You didn't make uh, hard copies like CDs or anything like that. If I, I would have, right. I would have liked to, but yeah, again, you know, I had no shows to get rid of the stock. So, right. Um, I still have like just a bunch of these just taking up space, but um, a bunch of the zines that is. Um, but yeah, no, the, the zine was the sort of the physical merch that I made. Right. And so yeah. I was just going to say that um, in the age of digital releases like Bandcamp or Spotify or whatever, mm. we've lost this thing with liner notes and liner notes used to provide so much context for the story behind the songs and the context and yeah. uh, who's even on the record sometimes isn't even published with, with digital releases. And I, I yeah. just really like that you did that. Um, what, mm-hmm. what made you think of doing doing a zine instead of or like by itself without an accompanying CD or something else. Yeah. I mean, I was basically trying to make like an enhanced album booklet, like CD booklet, I guess. But mm-hmm. I, ma- I made it bigger just so it started maybe taking on a little bit of like what a 10 inch LP would, as far as like the size, you know, like single, um, like a 45 or something. Um, so yeah, I like, I I just I think at the time I was thinking about this Ornette Coleman record This Is Our Music um where he has um it's he plays like Embraceable You on that record and there's like a handful of other I don't think it's Humpty Dumpty um anyway there there's a, there's a handful of other really beautiful Ornette songs on there and he he talks about like, yeah, every song has like a little chunk that he writes about it from his perspective as to like what he's thinking about in the music, um, how it's his music, you know, that's the title of the record. So the liner notes reflect like, how does Ornette, you know, think about these compositions? What does he appreciate in his band members? Um, how does he hear his yeah music as being unique? And I think there's like a, uh, a traditional liner note from some sort of jazz journalist, but then on the other side of the record, there's like a blurb for every track. And I just, I really love that mostly because it forced me, I thought it would be a good exercise in me taking ownership of my music and definitively saying like, okay, what about this? Like is special to me. What do I find special in the people that played on this? And how can I say this authoritatively that like, you know, I really believe in this music. Um, nice. So yeah, that was awesome. the Ornette, Ornette influence on, on that liner notes zine. Nice. Well, maybe we should give one of these songs a listen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was hoping it. to start off with Thorn, if that's cool with you. That's the single. Let's do it.
I really love this tune. Um, I remember hearing and watching this when your single came out, and it came out together with a music video, right? Yep. Yeah. My um, my brother-in-law to be John O'Connor uh, made. Yeah, we made the video together, um, and yeah, it came out. Yeah, it was the first single I probably put out. I think like late April or something, mid April. Cool. It's. The vibe of the music matches the vibe of the video really, really well, and mm. I, I love this video. I like, I, I like the, I like the film, like washed out. Maybe that's not the right adjective, but like the, something like about it being aged vibe. It's really, really cool. And uh, I'm curious. Like, there's, I see like, s- like smoke and maybe some fire, like some explosions. Like, what's all this footage from? And like, what's it? What's it? Um, how does it tie in with the music for you? I was thinking about something to sort of counterbalance the. Um, I think there's like a very like melodic, um, maybe like. Well, I don't know. It, it, there, there's like a kind of like uh, maybe a romanticism, a lyrical melodic quality about the the song, and I didn't. I wanted something to sort of like that was unrelated to that so that it didn't feel like, okay, this is like the music and the video are both like really like saying the same thing. Like I, I I think I have a tendency to want to balance out like an emotion or a color, you know, if we have like two different elements and I think I wanted something that was maybe a little bit jarring or, um, didn't have like an immediate connection to the music. Um, but gotcha. that together would sort of make something that like um, where like the two are commenting on each other, like the, the visual sort of makes you feel the music differently and the music makes you experience the visuals differently. Um, Definitely. You were talking on your liner notes about how this is in Brondo form. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and then further about how this was kind of inspired by Fernando Sor. Yeah. Um, I guess. A couple things here. Could you actually first just kind of tell us about Fernando Sor for those who don't know who that is? Yeah, I mean, I don't know a ton about him. Um, he's a, I think he's like a late nineteenth century um, Spanish guitarist and composer uh, yeah. who who wrote a lot of just the foundational, um, uh, yeah, classical guitar works um, and really like he has like a, a series of like very famous and beautiful etudes, um, as well as like full pieces. Um, so yeah, it's definitely like, you know, the guitar is like very, um, you know, the Spanish guitar is such a huge, um, part of the history of the guitar and, um, 
Yeah, and you know, I, I love playing the classical guitar music that I can play. Um, so that, yeah, that's a big part of it. Is yeah. the Spanish thing. Yeah, at this point, I kind of typically think of you as like a an improvisation based musician for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that could be totally off, but that's kind of how I tend to see your your music at this point, which is awesome. This song, um, you also mentioned how it's not really an improvised piece or anything. And so you kind of have to get creative with uh, that returning A section. Yeah. That happens multiple times throughout the song. Yeah. So is this, do you think the video is kind of like maybe an extension of that improvisational influence a little bit in that way? Yeah. To kind of add that, that feel to this song. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really interesting point. I think, what I what I have in mind um, with the video, I think, is actually born out of like maybe the way I think about improvising, which is like, you know, if you hear a musician putting out a certain idea, like, um, you know, young players tend to just like glue onto that idea and play the same thing, right? Like, right. oh, <laughs> someone starts playing like triplets in their solo and then like lo and behold the drummer's like all over the triplets or something you know it's like just like a classic you know feature right. of like musicians that want to you know listen to each copy other and but <laughs> copy paste yeah and like just sort of like maybe mimicry is the, the way to put it mm-hmm. but i think like the more you study the music you realize actually there's like these opposing forces that make the music great which is like the quarter note, like if we're just going to talk about like swing music, which is like, I don't know, the example that just comes mostly to mind. It's like you have this pulse that is just so steady. And then you have these things that have sometimes little to do with the pulse on a literal sense, but that friction is what's making the music happen is the fact that there's yeah this rhythmic totally. tension. And I think like between music and film or like music and visuals, it's like the, the cool thing is like when the visuals are like, seemingly unrelated and that that forces a new meaning to like emerge i think that informs a lot of my taste is like these improvisational tendencies that i think great musicians have to like keep opposing forces you know going as opposed to trying to like match each other or something and match each other in like a superficial way yeah absolutely i mean that tension and release is kind of that's like a beautiful thing. I mean, that is combined with something outside of the actual music itself. That's like a whole new mm-hmm. element to it, which is really cool. Yeah. Well, I love this song. Yeah. Um, do you want to listen to a new one? Maybe another song off the record? Yeah. I just wanted to go back to Josh's question real quick. Cause you asked about the footage. Oh, totally. and I just want, we just want to address the footage. It's, um, uh, my friend, brother-in-law, John just scoured the internet for like, uh, cult Japanese films. So, oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So it's a lot of like found footage, um, which I ended up looking just great. And then we shot, um, me, Ray and Tony, we shot some stuff at gallery 1412 and we were, my idea was sort of to get it to look like there's two elements that we're trying to combine. It's like this Pat Metheny music video um, for Last Train Home. I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind yeah. of amazing. Mm, I don't know this one. Um, 
they're like sort of all on platforms and there's this like dark room, but like they're playing, but it's sort of like the teacup ride at Disney where it's like, they're sort of moving around and like, it's slow, but it's like kind of a fun, like effect. I love that song, but I haven't seen the video. I'm going to have to go watch this. Yeah. Check it out. Um, and then this also this Bill Frizzell, like, instructional video from the nineties that has this amazing, <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. um, he's like sort of in some black box theater, it seems, but there's like very direct light coming on him and it's like real VHS looking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just love that stuff. So nice. Well, I'm curious that, um, the visuals match of, of you playing like matched up really, really well. Were you, were you was that the the footage of, was of the audio session for this too or did were you no no I no, guess, no we pantomiming uh, together with the music after? yes yes we pantomimed yes whoa that's yeah, but super I, I well also done think it turned out well yeah it was it was yeah, kind of hard pull it off yeah i had to i had to practice a couple times i was like what do I do? Do you there have to where... transcribe your own solos to tra- yeah. or transcribe your own, I guess, um, I guess, improvised interpretations of, of the piece then? Well, that's, that's what was good about a having mixed. It was like, I've heard this a gajillion times. So I know basically right. every part of it, but also it would have been really hard with an improvised solo. I've had to do that's that, true. like a, a music video to a solo. And it's like, yeah, you just have to learn it again. Note for note. Uh-huh. If you want it to look right. But. Yeah, I've uh, <laughs> I've had to transcribe other people's solos and pretend to be them in the video, and that was a weird experience. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. It is hard. But I want I want to say something just real quick about jazz music videos, which people don't really think about jazz as being like a music video, and I don't mean like, um, I guess there's like a new age, new era right now of music videos where it's like people playing, right? It's just like. Mm-hmm, right really well shot live concerts but there's this sort of glory days of like 80s jazz music videos like there's this one john Schofield um video i think it's called protocol where he's just sort of like walking around the streets of new york i think he's in queens just like playing and it's like <laughs> it's Whoa. just awesome i've like, never seen that <laughs> i love jazz music videos because it's like they're st- they're kind of trying to be like mtv content but obviously it's jazz so no one like Whoa. really cares as much as like madonna or something but, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, yeah i haven't yeah. really uh, explored this realm yeah there's a lot of good jazz music videos for sure Huh. Man, I'm gonna have to ask <laughs> you for some recommendations. So so far, I've got this uh, Pat Metheny last what was it? something last train home, last train home, last yeah. train home, and yeah. this John Schofield thing that I gotta check out too. So. Yeah, protocol. Nice. Is this from the guitar album, player uh, thing specifically, or well, I think <laughs> yeah, I think guitar players are just sort of cooler. So they're like, let's make a music video. <laughs> uh, not as cool as accordion players, I think. But you know, you're, cool. you're you're up there. It's close. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, I'm just kidding. Um, cool. So Max, you said we should listen to another song, and I agree. So uh, if you don't mind, we would love to check out Thickest Thieves. Let's do it.
This is really just a great record. Me and Max were on a call a couple days ago as we were preparing for this episode and talking about how uh, just this song and this record as a whole just has so much vibe and personality that's uh, undeniably from your 
musical voice. And this, mm, this tune just showcases that really well. Yeah. And even all playing aside, the actual way it was recorded and just the sounds that you're getting out of the instruments comes across so brilliantly in, in, on this, well, this song, but really the whole record as well. Um, but to me, yeah, it really stands out, especially with this instrumentation. You have three different bands kind of on this mm-hmm. record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we can get into that in a second, but uh, I did want to talk a little bit about just what's happening on this one. Um, again, if you look at the zine and the liner notes, um, you talk about having some Poinciana influence as well as some Ellington's Far East Suite influence. Um, and both of those, to me, really come across pretty pretty clearly. Um, mm-hmm. But could you talk about that a little bit for those who don't really know what those things are? Yeah. Um, you mean about those two specific influences? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, it's just the most... I don't know, just some of the most colorful music I've ever heard. Like, yeah, I mean, Ahmad Jamal is like, I guess specifically that song stands out in his catalog because um, I don't actually know who wrote it, but it's not an Ahmad original, um, but it might as well be. It's just like, I think that song stands out (laughs) so much because it it kind of goes against a lot of, um, well, you know, this might be actually just my own interpretation of jazz tradition but there's like a drum beat you know it's like when you play poinciana you're gonna want to play that beat you know it's not like you're gonna play something else that's better (laughs) than that um yeah it's like one of those songs that turned into a google word it's like what do you mean (laughs) now is it like as a verb you know oh and yes poinciana now means a whole thing that's not just the song yeah it's it's that song i think has become an ethos in a way like mm-hmm. i think what and what Ahmad's trio did is very much like you know it's hugely influential for that that reason of just having being in an improvisatory idiom but having parts you know i think that's yeah. i think that's the magic and that's the magic of ellington Elling, excuse me ellington as well is like I'm getting choked up just talking about it. Um, (laughs) It's just like, okay, obviously you have a band full of unbelievable improvisers, but you know, everyone's got a part in like the parts Mm -hmm. obviously composed and arranged by, you know, Strayhorn and Ellington. But it's like, yeah, these feel like improvised parts because they're really well-written. And like, eventually when both the improvisatory elements and compositional elements are so good, it's hard to tell which one's which. And I think that's what I love about those two. Yeah. Did you tell the band ahead of time that they like to kind of focus on those uh, recordings as kind of like a way to play? Or was that something that you appeared kind of after, after the fact? I probably mentioned it. um, But I think at the time when I was playing it, I wasn't, going back and trying to think about like how like like the influence of the piece i think i i probably did tell um abby and kelsey who have both played this song to just like stick on this do 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 um mm. for like as long as possible like you know basically like do not leave that pattern the bass is like the rock and like 
you know, you're not paying attention to anybody else. <laughs> well, you are, but you know, you're not, you're not, you're like, you're unwavering against anything, any other influence rhythmically. You're just, right. You know, the driving force. That's very cool. Yeah. Very awesome. So, uh, Max has alluded to three different bands being on this record, and I kind of want to dig into this here. So, the first tune that we listened to with Thorne had Ray Larson on trumpet and Tony Lefebvre playing bass, and that would, and you yeah. obviously on guitar yeah. as a trio. And yeah. uh, this tune is different. It's got uh, Matt Williams playing keys, Chris Acasiano on drums, and Kelsey, Kelsey Mines on bass, and Ray Larson again on trumpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a third band on this record too right with you and neil welch on saxophone abby blackwell yeah. on bass and thomas campbell on drums what's yeah <laughs> what's up with that how did you decide on the the different instrumentations uh and what what went into those choices yeah well like i said the icebergs track was one that i was actually planning on re-recording but i just like i didn't i didn't want it i didn't want a different track i wanted that specific performance um because mm. i love thomas's playing on it um i i think just the per- the performance was really nice and I, I didn't think we could do it better so um and i guess back then it was just like a different band and i think like um i was trying a lot of different things out i think for that specific song saxophone was great but i, I didn't really hear a tenor saxophone uh as much as i did trumpet on a lot of the other stuff. And I think as I kept writing music for this band, I was honing in on like, you know, what the best instrumentation was. And also just like rolling with the punches of like people's availability, you know, it's like sometimes you have a band and it's like, you have someone in mind, but then like they can't do it. So you find someone else to sub and then the sub ends up being really great too. So they're kind of in the band and you know, it's like, that's just the reality of, you know, I, I wish it were that you could just pick someone it would all work out. But, you know, oftentimes there's realities where, you know, that that's the way it goes. So, and this is also a, a topic we'll touch on a little bit more in, in a second, but uh, you're in LA now. So uh-huh. if you, I mean, this, you know, fingers crossed, if we can kind of, you know, start playing shows again and do that whole thing with COVID subsiding. Yeah. How do you plan on doing that? You have three different bands in the record. Uh, Are you going to do shows with like totally new people in LA? I'm or, so I mean, screwed. I'm so you... screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of wondering how all 12 people down to LA is what's going to happen. <laughs> I miss, I miss these people so much, really. Um, you know, part of, part of moving, I think when you're moving as a choice and not out of some other external force making you do it, there's like, you know, there's a, there's a sort of sadness, like leaving all like the really great things that you wish you could take with you. Um, and, you know, I think I just wanted to get out of Seattle just to see what was going on in LA, but yeah, I really miss those musicians and like, I couldn't ask for better musicians, um, to play with. That's for sure. But, um, I'm, uh, this music is sort of, at the time I was recording it, I was kind of done with it. It was, I felt like I wanted to record it and I had been playing them for a while. And some of them were kind of old compositions. I think the icebergs, I think I wrote in like 2015 or 16. So it was like, 
you know, mm. not new material. So in LA, I mean, right now I'm just writing a lot of new material for a band that has yet to be discovered, but uh, cool. yeah, no hurry in that, in that regard. Nice. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about LA, but before we leave talking about this record specifically, I was looking through the Bandcamp page for your record, and you mentioned a uh, an organization, I guess, or a project called Real Rent Duwamish, and that yeah. your a portion of your album sales are going towards that. And yeah, can you tell us a bit about what that is and why you made that decision? Yeah, I mean, it's a really straightforward organization. They sort of um, frame donations as like playing, uh, paying rent on Duwamish land. Um, and they typically do like a monthly donation, uh, model where you just like pay, you know, they have like a little income calculator on their website that like whatever you make a year, they, you know, have some sort of percentage where they deem that that's appropriate to, um, to support the Duwamish tribe. And, um, yeah, just basically like, and for those that, don't know the Duwamish peoples are the indigenous uh, people group that live and still live on Seattle land, right? Right. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah. And basically like, you know, like as is, as is the story with all over the country, um, just like have not been made whole from um, white settlers basically. So, um, and I think for me that, that, just having been ha having made music all my life in Seattle and like, you know, the, the Duwamish influence in the city is so, um, such a part of the feeling it's of the everywhere. city. Yeah. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's everywhere. And like, really like, um, I don't know. I just felt like I owed, I owed money to them or <laughs> like owed like, royalties basically i mean you can think of it in any way basically rent their their framework for rent is like you live here on this land so you should pay rent and um yeah i just yeah i'm donating the money that comes in i was able to make a good donation from um this particular release but yeah it's a, it's a really cool organization and like a cool like mindset to to think about yeah your relationship cool. to well thanks Very for telling cool. us about it all right, so I want to hear about your move to L.A. First of all, why would you leave Seattle, Ronan? <laughs> why? Um, you want the real story? Or the... No, I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Kind no, of. I mean, like... Um... Do we want the real story? <laughs> no, I think you do. I'll give, I'll give you the real story. I mean, I think I, I had finished grad school at UW, which was like such a amazing experience. Um, and I, I think I just wanted to like sort of test my metal somewhere else. Like I f feel really sure. at home in Seattle, feel like accepted and welcomed by the musical community. But at the same time, I feel like I hit this weird, I don't know. A lot of this is just how I perceive the scene, but I felt like I hit this weird, like, um, like I didn't have like a permanent home somewhere. Like I love playing at the Royal room, but I wasn't really like a fixture in that scene and like cafe racer closed. And like, I considered that sort of a musical home of sorts and that wasn't really happening. And 
at the time of my move, it didn't, I didn't know it was going to happen again. And um, a lot of my close friends had moved away either to New York, or Seattle, and it just felt like a good time to, to go test sort of these experiments that I'd conducted, if you will, in Seattle and see like, you know, how this music works elsewhere. Like how do people in Los Angeles play free music? How, how do you think about composition and like, yeah, mm -hmm. I think just novelty. I, it's hard for me to like think about staying in one place for a really long time, even though I really miss Seattle. Sure. Um, totally. Yeah. That, well, how's that it been going down there? Oh, great. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. Just like, you know, a lot of people I meet, I think the key difference really, if I'm going to throw a little shade on Seattle is like, <laughs> I've had people like who I haven't met in person, like hit me up online and be like, Hey, you're a musician. Like we know these people like want to go grab a drink. Like Whoa. right now, do you want to go tonight? Hmm. And I've just been like really, I, it's been great meeting new people and meeting great musicians that just want to like get to know you because you play music. And in Seattle, that was, that's not really the, the social culture there. And I think I've, that's been refreshing to me. I mean, again, all of the, all this comes down to perception, but my perception is that like people in LA, especially I mean, a lot of great musicians I've met down here just have no, like, guard up. And it's like, you would expect people that are, like, really great and busy in music to not really have time for new newcomers to the scene. But, um, yeah, I feel very welcome here. And um, there's lots of people making really interesting music and putting on great shows. So, it's been great so far. Nice. That's exciting. And yeah. so, uh, when exactly did you move to LA? Uh, right after I put out the record, basically. Um, okay, gotcha. Cool. Yeah, and you Has know, Haley been... Friedland wrote a really nice review for me in Earshot, where she sort of like frames the record as like sort of like a like a goodbye, like love letter to Seattle kind of thing, which I think is a really sure. sweet way of putting like how it felt to release that record. And um, yeah, anyway, so that was. Just because it pertains to the record, I thought I'd share that. But. Yeah, that's really mm -hmm. nice. It's recent. Um, yeah, I was just curious, um, you know, like having moved while COVID restrictions were still in effect in a lot of different places, has that been difficult to establish yourself in a new scene and make connections? I guess you've mentioned that you've met some really friendly musicians who just hit you up out of the blue. Um, but yeah, how, how else has that been going? I mean... Yeah, I mean, stuff is technically open now since the 15th, so it feels really yeah, different. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, if anything, people are just, like, really excited to make new connections and to get back out there. So I'm yeah. not really looking to, like, establish myself or anything like that. Like, I, I want to, you know, and there's lots of really great people around here, like Daniel Salka, Levi Gillis. Um, handful of you know ex seattle people who i'm working with on music right now and um mm -hmm. so yeah like i think people are just really excited to get back out there and like get out of their own little musical bubbles nice yeah very cool 
Well, uh, you mentioned you're writing a lot of new music. Um, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about what you have kind of on the horizon? Yeah, I've been working um, on, yeah, some like home recording demos of like a full length record of songs that I'm going to record or like start recording like the final versions of sometime in the next month or so. I've been working with Remy Moritz, who's awesome drummer in Seattle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, working with Levi Gillis, um, getting a handful of other people on like stuff that's more like coming out of my love for like Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, <laughs> who's that? <laughs> Uh, Bob Dylan, saxophonist Bob Dylan. Yeah, <laughs> you don't know him. You should really check him out. Um, You're yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, like just more, just like the classic songwriters that I love, um, and maybe like more contemporary influences also. But you know, whatever that means. But um, yeah, they're songs. They're proper songs. They have lyrics. They have song forms. They have drums. Nice. Uh, hmm. It's like a rock and roll album. Are you so, going to be singing? Yeah, I'm singing too. Um, I guess that's, that's the main difference. Yeah, it is exciting. It's really fun. Uh, it's also just really fun to bring, like, you know, I can play a little bass, I can play a little keys, I can play guitar and sing and get around some recording technology. So it's immensely satisfying to just make demos at home and sort of explore how these songs can sound, which isn't super That's possible awesome. with a lot of the jazz stuff I've written in the past because I can't mm. play those instruments mm-hmm. well enough to really um, approach what I want it to sound like. But, sure. Yeah, and then I'm also well, writing some some bizarre, you know, like 12-tone, like 12-tone synth music sort of. <laughs> in the other direction. Nice. Yeah. I have to kind of keep it varied in some ways, you know? Um, so yeah, lots of just playing, playing with a lot of cool. things. Very cool. Well, what are good places for our listeners to follow what's going on with you and your music? Um, I love Bandcamp. So, I mean, if you want to smash that follow on Bandcamp, that's a good way to keep up. You know, love it or hate it, Spotify seems here to stay. So you can follow me on Spotify where I put out music. Um, Instagram too, I guess I'm active on there. Uh, at Ronan Delil Music. If you want some musical content and some occasionally mildly funny things. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing this uh, wonderful set of music with us and some of the stories behind it. Uh, We are about at time here. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This, like I've listened to this podcast um, as a way of getting to know people that I think I know, (laughs) but I actually (laughs) don't know that much about them. And like, yeah, just having the opportunity to hear people who I've hung out with a lot, like get asked questions that I wouldn't necessarily think to ask um, has been really helpful and illuminating. It makes me appreciate the Seattle jazz scene a lot. So thanks oh, for having cool me. Hear. 
be a part yeah, of it. Yeah, well, thanks for doing it. Thanks for making mm-hmm. a cool record too. <laughs>